Welcome to episode 70 of Contested Catch. We're back after a little holiday layover, Jeff. Happy New Year, my friend. Uh, it was a good year, kind of, in 2020, you know, when you're focusing on the things that we've been working on. Um, Cer- certainly an iconic year. Certainly an iconic year. It will be remembered, no doubt. Um, but how was your new year? Anything you want to share since the last episode? Nope, nope. Had a good holidays, low-key, COVID-friendly new year with the family. And uh, you know, actually, the family did get a new puppy again. Again? Oh, my goodness. They, they got they got one last Feb- like February, and they got another one this like December. I'm like, you guys are crazy. They're retooling. So, they're they're getting younger on the roster before the old ones retire. I guess uh, before <laughs> the before before, the, before they become em- empty nesters. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good so, stuff. So they're they're currently four full time dogs at the Gould household. Wow. Plus, um, five, a fifth when my brother brings his lap over, and a sixth if you count your brother. True. <laughs> okay. Good stuff. Yeah, I had a good uh COVID friendly New Year as well. Um, it was nice to be up north and nice to be up north, uh, in Buffalo for the Bills Miami game. So, or Bills New England game rather. So, um, we will talk about that shortly, but first Jeff, I wanted to kick this off with probably the most prominent piece of, uh, of football news, uh, football debate, I guess you could say in the last couple months, I'd argue, uh, it seemed like every single person and a lot of players were talking about this. And that is of course the Philadelphia Eagles. Washington football team tanking debate. So, you know, if you missed it, if you've been under a rock, basically Philadelphia started Jalen Hurts as they had the past few weeks. And then towards the end of the game, he struggled. He had a a decent start and then he struggled. They put Nate Sudfeld in, the backup uh, quarterback, if you don't count Carson Wentz, who was inactive for the game. Uh, So he went in, he played even worse. Uh, I think we only had like 30-something yards and an interception on 12 attempts. This was not, not good. And this move was seen, um, you know, would seem to hand the game to Washington and squash the Giants playoff hopes. So the Giants sitting at six and ten, you know, if if Washington had lost, the Giants would be in the playoffs. So they were understandably upset. Joe Judge said a lot on the matter. Uh, A lot of players said a lot on the matter. Uh, but Jeff, you know, some of the color that is sometimes left out in these in this debate is that Sudfeld was said to be during the week by head coach Doug Peterson said that he would get time in the game. Not to mention Jalen Hurts wasn't playing like lights out. It wasn't like he threw 300 yards and three touchdowns in the first half. Like, you know, he's had some great first halves in the past. He wasn't playing that great. And Philly is out of the playoffs. Like they have no reason to do anything that they don't want to do. Obviously, you know, there's the spirit of the game. There's being competitive and you're playing a division rival. But still, I mean, I th- I think there's uh, a side of this that is more practical on a side of this is a little bit more passionate and about the spirit and feeling of the game. And then one last tidbit I'll add, obviously the, the loss for Philadelphia moved them up in the final uh, draft order. And they went from ninth overall, if they had one to sixth with the loss. So Jeff, what are your thoughts on the scenario uh, on this overall debate here? Uh, man, it's just, it's ridiculous how, how blown out of proportion this is. If, if this had happened in the one or four o'clock slate of games, no one would bat an eye. Uh, like that That's the only reason people are up in arms is because it was on national TV. For the New York Giants, I mean, if, if you don't want to be dependent on a team winning a game to go to the playoffs, don't be 6-10. and 10. Exactly. Like, you, you, shouldn't, you have no right to be in the playoffs at 6-10, and 10, I'm sorry. Um, for the Eagles, you're right. They said Sudfeld was likely to get reps. 
and they had several inactives already. Like basically anyone who was on the injured report during the week was inactive. Just keep everyone healthy. Um, like the fumble snap, like that wasn't Sudfeld. That was Kelsey. And Kelsey even said like, you know, Aiden Matt and I, he just went over and started taking snaps, brought the OL over to listen to the cadence, and you know, they went out there. So like it's just completely blown out of proportion simply because it was on national TV. If this happened at the one o'clock slate of games, no one would even care. Also, in one more note, let's say they did keep Hertz out there and he got injured. I mean, then what? Like, you know, this was your maybe quarterback of the future, and you left him out there in a meaningless game for some mostly meaningless reps and boom, now you just RG3'd him or whatever. Like, I mean, that's another thing is to, like, I don't know if Hertz is or isn't. Obviously, we both like his, like, prospect profile, but he said he wasn't, you know, lighting up or anything. So, I mean, but what if he got hurt? Right. And this is the other thing. It's not like Sudfeld was told to, like, take the snap, run 20 yards, and run out of the back of the end zone or something like that. Like, you know, they didn't throw the game. They didn't have players on the field throwing the game. They played players that are on the roster that they're paying to play football. And guess what? They played football. And guess what? They lost. That is the nature of the sport. And I think the other thing is this is not different uh, in practice in the way that is actually executed than when a team that is already locked into their playoff spot, i.e. the Bills, uh, rest starters or don't play people that might be injured or remove the starting quarterback because they don't actually care about the outcome of the game. I mean, Buffalo, we'll talk about the Miami game, but Buffalo did this in the second half with most of their starters. In fact, Jeff, you and I were clamoring for it among other Bills fans saying, hey, what the hell are Josh Allen and and uh, Stephon Diggs still doing in the game? And guess what? If Miami had won, they probably would be in the playoffs. So Playoffs? Playoffs. Uh, so people are like, well, it's different because you're trying to preserve, you know, you're trying to win future. Well, guess what? The Eagles, the job of their management and their coaching staff is to make their players play the best they can, but also set the team up for success. And and the ultimate goal is obviously a Lombardi trophy, something that many of these Eagles vets understand. I think that the difference in the prospect uh, that they could get at nine versus six, especially with the really high, uh, high value wide receivers that are rumored, you know, to be in the sights of the Eagles, or at least people think they should be. Uh, is is big, right? I mean, Jamar Chase could could potentially fall to sixth. I doubt he falls to ninth. So, and I think someone, um, if you use the Jimmy Johnson chart, I think it equates to around like the fifty something or sixty something. Yeah, like a late a late second rounder, exactly. Or and, or right, or even that. Like this is this is a roster that's projected to be seventy seventy five million dollars over the cap in twenty twenty one. Yeah, like that that is insane. They are going to have massive cap casualties. And they're going to need to like replenish this roster with a ton of cheap rookie talent. Like you could just, you know, maybe it's not even about trying to get a specific player. It's just about trying to get the biggest asset you can get. And then with four quarterbacks, like um, projected to go in the top 10 to 12, I mean, it might just be about getting up to six so that you can trade back and get more cheap rookies. Cause you're going to need them. Like this is a not, going to be a complete and good roster next year i agree and you know i just think that people need to like step outside especially giants fans i I don't even know you could persuade a giants fan this was an acceptable move because of the fan bias so maybe i shouldn't talk to specifically giants fans but just in general like 
again, I would I would probably have a different stance on this if they like, you know, threw the ball 100 yards backwards out of the end zone and took a safety and then gave the ball away or, you know, started taking a knee while down with two minutes on the clock. Exactly. You know, something crazy like that, because you would you would feel really, really weird if the players were, quote unquote, in on the tank. And the I will say this, Jeff, the last thing I'll say about it is the only thing that almost swayed me on this issue was that it seemed like the players for the Philadelphia Eagles were not on board with this move. They were confused, in some cases upset. There was a video of Jalen Hurts shaking his head saying it's just not right uh, on the sidelines after being pulled. I, you know, that's presumably about the decision to remove him. But I got to say... We, we have no idea what the actual context was. Right. I mean, he could be talking about, you know, that was a bad play call, and, you know, it was the last play or oh. something. Who, who knows? So I understand... Oh, someone fucked someone's wife. <laughs> I suppose that's a possibility as well. Uh, it's just... I just think it was totally blown out of proportion, like you said. It probably was exacerbated by uh, the primetime slot that they were in. So anyways, let's put this one to bed. If you still have, you know, concerns about this, I think that you need to look at it a little bit more practically. Uh, so anyway, we'll move on, Jeff. We, we haven't talked about, in hindsight at least, about two of uh, the last two Buffalo Bills games. And so we always talk about the Bills games. Obviously, we made prediction before the New England game. Uh, and, you know, it was just absolute and utter dominance the last two weeks. Buffalo is by far the hottest team in football at the end of the regular season across the league. I mean, there's no one, I think, that is playing better football than the Bills. Absolute and utter dominance against New England. I had a pretty aggressive score prediction, Jeff. I talked, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit about the spread, you know, minus seven in favor of Buffalo uh, being pretty aggressive in terms of Vegas standards, but uh, it still felt like, the Bills were going to win by much, much more than that. I think I had a 17-point spread in my score prediction. It was actually a little too low. We actually held them to less than 13 to 9 and scored more than 31, 38. So uh, amazing game for Buffalo. And in New England, first time an AFC's team has swept uh, New England in since 2000, I think it was. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just fantastic, right? We played out of our minds. Now, New England is, is still a struggling team. Um, I think without direction on either side of the ball, without a lot of talent on either side of the ball, but you know that they wanted to win this game. They they weren't doing anything like we talked about with the Eagles. So, uh, any thoughts on the New England game specifically? Um, I, I I think it was just to an extent the Bills like not not their coming out party, but like their message that this is their division now. I think the first the first time we played New England earlier in the year. It was a good win, but it wasn't dominant. It was like, okay, we've taken we've taken them over. Like we can do this. We can win the division. And I mean, because New England was driving to tie it up until right. Cam fumbled inside the twenty or whatever. So it was like it was a win. You know, a win's a win. It wasn't necessarily a sexy win. But it was like, okay, we can win this division for the first time. Uh, like you know, we we beat them, but like this was uh slaying and this was like this is no longer up for discussion we are the kings of the afc east yeah and it was uh it was a stamp game for these players too i think the longtime bills vets there aren't a ton of them left but the longtime ones probably couldn't have felt any better about this particular win than any in the season um and then also just to see like stefan diggs throw up the peace sign you know all those touchdowns those huge plays it was just absolute routine domination for the bills and it's it's scary jeff because as bills fans we're starting to get used to it a little bit uh and then the next week we're way too overconfident right way too overconfident you know if we were in college football we said we want bama right now um (laughs) we play miami 
And we want Mahomes. <laughs> again, Bills, the Bills had already clinched a playoff berth, obviously clinched the division. Uh, we were either going to be the third seed or the second seed. With a win, we guarantee the second seed. With a Steelers loss, we would be in uh, and, and our own loss, we would be the third seed. Not too consequential. I don't think that really played at all into the Bills handling of this game. Definitely didn't once the, when the second uh, team came in. But anyway, Miami was basically fully tooled. Uh, they were playing Tua, and they were playing to get in the playoffs. So this was a game. They were missing Fitzpatrick, though. Well, but I think they probably would be playing Tua anyway. Theoretically, he could have come in. They, in the second they were. They would have started Tua, but I think once they got down by two and a half scores, like I think Fitz would have come in. It you know maybe even just to start the second half. Maybe yeah. I mean maybe that would have affected the margin of victory a little bit. But the point is, Miami was playing to win. And Buffalo only played their starters for the first half, basically. I got to say, you know, projecting this game with that knowledge, we they did everything that we expected, right? Miami's playing to win. They were playing their starters. The Bills were probably only going to play their starters or they're going to rest them for uh, much, if not most, of the game. But, Jeff, the, the, the point here is it didn't matter. The Bills cemented a strong lead at half, thanks to Isaiah McKenzie's beast mode three touchdowns. The lead was only grown by the second team players. We ended 56 to 26. It was one of the most dominant performances, especially when you factor in that the second team was in for the second half. That was just stellar. Bitcoin Barkley dropping Satoshis. <laughs> it was awesome. How about Gabe Davis, too, coming in in the second half with, with two 50-plus yard catches? Um, he is going to – that was such a steal in the fourth round. I agree. I'm, I'm so happy with his progression. such a contributor to this franchise. And the crazy thing is he's he's four months younger than Devonta Smith. That's interesting. We'll get more into that later this draft season. Yeah, exactly. We got a lot of draft stuff in the works. Um, Jeff, so let's wrap up the trifecta here. We'll talk about the Bills next game. Bills are touchdown favorites at home versus the Colts. And, you know, this is in Buffalo. Jeff, we talked offline about the weather in this one, how it could affect Philip Rivers. As I think you tweeted this, it's the fifth coldest game in his career. But Indy has looked good all season. Uh, I wasn't quite a buyer in them. And before the season, I think their defense totally exceeded my expectations. Philip Rivers played better than I expected, but most of it otherwise, you know, went uh, about according to plan. Jonathan Taylor just went nuclear in week 17. So their running game is in full swing. We know they've got some dynamic playmakers in that running back room. Um, and the other thing, Jeff, is we know Buffalo is susceptible to the run. At times, this has been furthered by our defensive strategy to create a run funnel against better offenses, ones that we want to take out of the air and put them on the ground. I don't know that this is going to be a wise strategy in this one, even though we know the pass is more effective than the run generally. I would almost rather have Philip Rivers try to beat him, beat us with his popcorn arm and allow you know Jonathan Taylor to run into a brick wall every play and try to contain him. That's not typically how I'd want to handle things, but just the fact that this team is very good at running the ball and I'm not really scared of their pass offense. What are your thoughts on that? Do you agree? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I do think, though, the arguably the best way to neutralize a, a strong rushing attack is to just get a lead and force them to pass and don't even let them get in situations uh, where it's like good to run. So um, let's see. The Colts – well, this – actually, let me – uh, adjust this to the last uh, weeks, what do you think, 10 through 17? Sure. So, and we will see that the Colts, uh, all right, 0 0.045 EPA per rush, 
0.13 EPA per for play and almost 0.2 EPA for drop back. So like that is still like a really big gap. Um, you know, like 1.8 percentage point difference in success rate though. So like in terms of, I guess, consist like situational consistency, like it's really close I mean, with this in general, the big plays are just so much more in the path in the passing game. And you look at the slate of defenses that the Colts just went up against. Like it's Swiss cheese. It's the Houston Texans. It's the Jacksonville Jaguars, the Tennessee rush defense is abysmal. Like, so it, it's dominant as they were on the ground. It's not like they were going up against good defenses. Now, yes, the bills defense against the run, obviously, were designed on the back end, stop the pass, and see the run. But the one thing I'll point out, though, is the big rushing plays kind of tend to happen more when you actually stuff the box. Definitely, yeah. Um, so because there isn't anyone on the back end. So even if we keep the lighter box, and yeah, like we're giving up four to six yards consistently, but not allowing Taylor just to get in the open field and break a big one, I'm okay with that because our offense is going to eventually maybe it's whether or not it's a slow start. Like you, you're not going to, this offense is at the point now where you're not going to stop them. You just have to do all you can to slow them down and hope your offense to keep up. Like that's the level this offense is playing with. So the defense, you know, see those four five, six, seven yard runs earlier on, don't give up the big rush. And then when the offense gets out to a 10, 14 point lead, it doesn't really matter how well they're running the ball because they're going to have to drop back and pass. And I mean, they don't have anyone that really scares me wide receiver and old man rivers really just can't push the ball downfield the way he used to. And I think we'll be fine. Uh, weather wise. Yeah. It's the fifth coldest temperature in his career. This is supposed to be, but doesn't look like there's going to be any factor with the elements. It should be sunny. Um, and it also the cold hasn't impacted rivers in the past. Uh, you know, I was expecting there to even just be a little bit of a drop off in efficiency simply by the way of colder games happening in the playoffs and playing better defenses. That wasn't even really true. He had a slightly higher EPA per play than what we saw in like over his entire career and just a slight drop in CPOE. So I really like cold would really just be a narrative unless there was actual um, elements. I don't think weather is going to play a factor really at all. It's just going to be good old football. Okay. So I think a fair uh, score estimate here from my perspective, Jeff, is 31-17 Buffalo. And the reason I say that is I do think, like you said, this offense is too much to stop at this point. The Colts are a good defense. They have contained offenses this season. I don't think that the Bills are are in the mood to be contained at the moment. And I know that's a little bit narrative and not in that uh week 10 through 17 sample size I was mentioning, Bills are actually fifth in rushing EPA per play. That's awesome. That's what happens when you get healthy. Yeah, that's true. We know that it's just not as important to stop the run. Foot, quote unquote football guys think that, you know, stopping the run and running the ball obviously is the most important thing, blah, blah. Uh, and that passing is just for flash, basically. But uh, so that's that's good. But honestly, I, I don't even really care care too much because even if they run on us, you know, we we can still outpace them all day, so, assuming Jonathan Taylor doesn't run for 600 yards. Um, so anyway, I'm going 3117, Jeff. Uh, do you have any pivot off of that score total? Give me 35. 35. Okay. I mean, I'll take it. 
Uh, cool. All right, so let's move away from the Bills now, Jeff. We want to talk about the other two Saturday games, and uh, then we'll do about DFS talk about the three-game slate, and then we'll do the same thing for the Sunday game. So next up, Jeff, obviously Seahawks minus 3.5 at home versus the Rams. And Seahawks won uh, 20 to nine in week 16. Earlier this season, they lost 16 to 23 against the Rams. I'll say this about the Seahawks. Russ hasn't been cooking the same way that he was in the first half. And Seattle hasn't been the same dominant team that they were earlier in the season. Obviously, they still finished 12 and four. They're still a very good team. I do expect them to get back to their ways because I think they're going to sell out and be like, hey, like we need to win this game. And Los Angeles is a competitive team. If they're not a great team, they're a competitive team. They're going to play you pretty tough. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, this defense still has some some spark. That Dunlap signing obviously was enormous. So I think Russ is going to cook. I've been anti the Rams all season in terms of often picking against them. I've been pro Seattle all season. I go Seattle minus three and a half comfortably um, and feel pretty good about it. But I just want to add that caveat because I apparently – uh, have a tendency in this type of matchup. So, Jeff, what say you about this matchup? Are the Rams going to give the Seahawks more trouble than I'm expecting? Oh, we don't even know who the quarterback is going to be for the Rams yet. That's so, true. But which kind of matters. Um, overall, though, like the, I mean, defense is almost like a kryptonite matchup for the Seahawks because. You have Aaron Donald just blowing up their still bad offensive line in the middle. And then you have, um, I don't know, Ramsey on the back end. Like, it's just not really, um, like, stylistically, it's, they have kind of the secret formula, I guess, to, you know, make Russ simmer. But uh, <laughs> I, I do still think the, the Seahawks still, still win for more or less the reasons you laid out. Um, if I, does Vegas even care who the quarterback is for the Rams, though? I'm not sure. I mean, with the uncertainty, you'd think they'd be a little bit more in favor of Seattle here. Right now, it's basically a pick them and you give them the three points for the home field advantage. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I would I would have guessed yeah. it would, you know, if we for sure or even if it was like less optimistic about golf, it'd probably be more in favor of Seattle. But I don't know. I mean, golf, we, we, we've talked about our feelings on golf. So, um, yeah. Um, here's a little, little stat. So from weeks one through eight, the, um, Seahawks were overall passing at a 68% clip versus an expected pass rate of 57%. So 11 percentage points over expected. And now from weeks nine through 17, they are their passing rate dropped from 68% to 66%, but their expected pass rate went up to 62%. So only a four percentage point difference above expected. Um, now, yes, Russ hasn't played as well as he was, but also they aren't being as assertive trying to pass the ball as they were early in the season when he was cooking. So um, I will Pete Carroll and Schottenheimer you know, go back to letting Russ cook, or are they going to just think, Hey, this is working. We got to run the ball, f- you know, 40, what is it? 53 rushes plus completions <laughs> or whatever. And yeah. try and get 10 rushes in the first drive and end up going, you know, run, run punt. Um, 
I don't know. I hope they just decide to air it out and let Russ cook. And then he and Metcalf and Lockett are able to shred because they're so much fun when they do that. I just have zero confidence in Carroll really doing that until he has to. Well, I mean, yeah, that's typically how they've done it, right? They wait until like the late in the second half to really turn Russ on. And then he goes off and they win by a score late. Like that's, that's the Seahawk way the past couple of years this year in the first half, at least it wasn't that it wasn't the case. They were letting Russ cook from the, from the get go. So I have a hope. This is a hope. There isn't like, you know, reports that they're going to do this, but I have a hope that this is going to be the case again, as it was in the first half where Russell Wilson is unleashed from the get go and, you know, you just have to think, like, when you're in a win, you know, a must-win game, you have to put the ball in, the, in your best player's hands. During the regular season, I could I could understand wanting to spread the wealth and maybe not putting Russ as much in harm's way or whatever kind of justification that they might have for it. But when you're in a must-win game, it's, it's like unfathomable to just use Russell Wilson to hand the ball off. So, anyway, that will be an interesting one. We will monitor for sure. Um, moving on to Saturday night, Jeff, Saturday night football, we've got the bucks minus eight and a half versus Washington football team. Tom Brady has been absolutely rolling the last three weeks and he's got 10 touchdowns, one interception, a passing yard floor, 348 yards and a strong completion completion percentage in each of those three games. But Jeff, the opponents were Atlanta twice and Detroit. Now we know Washington football team has a strong defense. It will be a great matchup to pair up against strong, strong defense. A uh, great matchup with Tampa Bay's strong offensive line. They've been really good all year. And Mike Evans is a game-time decision. He had a scary knee injury immediately after eclipsing 1,000 yards for a record seventh year in a row. Bravo. Congrats. I think he was either a full or limited participant today. Yeah, they said he's a game-time decision. I think there's optimism as, as the report that came out. So we'll see. Uh, yeah. At the same time, my, my anticipation is that he starts, and then if they get out to a big lead, he'll rest. If it's close, you know, maybe he'll won't play like a full snap count, but like, you know, grind it out. That's just my guess. Yeah, but you know, it's plausible. Um, I think they have no reason to lead on if he like. Maybe they already know that he's not going to play or something. It didn't look good. I'll say that. It may, if they already know that he's not going to play, like I don't know why you'd give an indication of that. Say he's questionable. Say he's game time decision. I think that's the best move you could do to not give too much information to your opponents. But on the other side of the ball, Washington isn't perfectly healthy either. Um, you know, stars Antonio Gibson and Terry McLaurin both expected to play alongside Alex Smith, but all three have been dealing with injuries. I think Alex Smith's injury is the only one that's actually going to like carry over into the game. We've seen him not quite be the same player uh, that he was earlier in the year in terms of his mobility. And, you know, do the calf strain. So I got to say this, Jeff, knowing that all these guys are probably going to play. I'm tempted to take the Washington money line, even though this is quite a spread. Uh, and the reason is a nice Oceanside condo in uh, Nigeria to sell you. <laughs> I, 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 I was going to say smart money is probably on Tom and his experience. The Bucks are an overall better team. They've got a more explosive offense. They've got a good defense. Washington has, you know, I would say comparable, maybe a little better defense. Um, but Washington has been a team of belief. They've been overcoming odds this season. I want to root for them on Saturday. And I also have to say they have overcome better teams than the Bucs, teams playing better than the Bucs. Um, and, I, you know, I just think that this recent performance by the Bucs is a little bit of a mirage based on the type of games that they've been in and the defenses they've faced. So, you know, 
I, I, it's, it's not the, the smartest move. Still, I'm going to be rooting for Washington in this one. I hope that they can move on to the next round. What say you? Oh, I mean, I'm with you. I'm going to be rooting for Washington. I would never root for Tom Brady. <laughs> um, uh, even with um, football team strong front seven, like I, I really feel like the only way that they can lose is if like the Bucks beat themselves, particularly with Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich's play calling. And like they do try to go football guy and establish the run and their dominance and waste a bunch of early downs and like Brady gets forced into these third and longs early on and you know you get like a turnover or whatever but uh I mean as good as their pass rush is Tom Brady is getting the ball out at the 10th fastest clip in the league per next gen stats with an average time to throw of 2.57 seconds and even with that uh quick release he has the third uh, for this like average target depth. So he's getting the ball out quick, but he's still pushing it downfield. And I, I mean, especially with those three receivers plus Gronk getting back into form, I just don't know how on the back end the football team's able to cover all four of them and let uh, give Chase Young the time to get to Brady. Um, and then on the other side of the ball, I mean – I don't know, Gibson and Terry have to be healthy for them to even have a chance. Uh, I mean, Logan Thomas has been playing fantastic this year. I think he was like the tight end three in the second half of the season. So, um, I mean, Gibson's explosiveness, uh, I mean, I guess it you know helps give you a chance, but I just really, I can see him covering. I just do not see how they win this game. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I don't disagree with anything you said. Um, I just think that, when it comes to like must win games, some magic can happen. And, you know, I'm not going to sprinkle the magic dust on my bets this weekend. I probably won't bet this one, but uh, football team is like the, just the team of destiny this year. I don't know that. I just feel like it would be very <laughs> fitting, you know, if they won this game, and then lost, you know, it just, I really do think that there is something intangible with football in must win games um, where you know, momentum is a thing that's oftentimes criticized, uh, especially by the analyst community, because you you think you would be able to uh, quantify it, you'd be able to see it show up somewhere. So I'm not necessarily saying that, but I think that this is this could be the best game we see from Washington all year, just because they've overcome so much. They snuck in right at the last second, uh, or you know, you know, I guess it, it wasn't a guarantee they were going to make the playoffs, and now they're here, and you know, they've just got a lot going on for them. So, I, you know, if I'm completely wrong, so be it. But uh, that's that's my thinking there. But Jeff, let's talk about the DFS three game slate here. So Saturday, we've got these six teams. There is some some explosion here, uh, you know, in terms of the Bills have a great offense. You've got obviously Jonathan Taylor on the other side of the ball. So there's a stack option there. The Seahawks have the, the duo of wide receivers and Russ, the Rams. You know, I don't know how inviting they are, but you still got two good receivers there with Cup and Woods um, if they both play. And then the Bucks. you already mentioned the, the skill position players. So, you know, what are you thinking about this three-game slate and how you want to structure uh, probably your favorite lineup? It's tough to have, like, contrarian individual plays when you, like, a quarterback. You have six to choose from, and you basically have really three options unless you want to go for, uh, unless Goff sits and you go with, like, Wolford for, 
know, 4,900. So you can build up elsewhere. Um, so really like differentiation comes in your build strategy. So for example, Allen and Diggs are going to be probably the two most owned players on the slate. Okay. Like that's fine. Um, I mean, like it makes sense that the two hottest players right now, but if let's say you want to, you want to play them and I don't know, you're building 20 lineups, let's say, I think you have an option of like a, maybe you just go all in on Diggs. So instead of trying to like to fade him, you're saying, um, you know, like the field's already going to be 65, 70% on him. I don't want to fade him. My edge is going to be overweight, the overweight. Or another way could be you in your Allen lineups, you don't even, you don't touch Diggs, but then you put Diggs in every other non-Allen lineup as an example, because then your Allen lineups, like each, if, your Allen lineups and your Diggs, line, Diggs lineups are going to be differentiated because you don't have the two of them together. So those are some like building strategies you could uh, consider. Uh, if you do just want to stack Allen Diggs, hey, like I mean, by all means, go for it. Uh, you just have to find some other like point, like differentiation points, uh, low on players. Um, so going through the the games, I think Naheem Hines down at uh 4700 he's not quite half the price of taylor but pretty close and with the projected negative game script the colts are going to play i feel like he's uh he's a strong play this week be um and he's assuming that he just ends up getting like 10 15 targets and i think i saw phil rivers had a 29 percent target share to running backs this year uh, it's just pretty wild. Um, so that's where Hines being the receiving back, um, I think makes him a strong play at 4,700. And, uh, um, but on the flip side, you could say, look, Taylor is their best player. Maybe he's not quite as strong of a quote, like pure receiver, but he is just maybe that much more explosive that, you know, you just get the ball in the hands of your more explosive player. I mean, I don't know if that's their mindset or in the playoffs or, you know, if it's going to be what we see more during the regular season. I don't really like Singletary or Moss. I mean, Antonio Williams this past Sunday against Miami, he had the highest outing for any Bills running back of the 2020 season. Uh, that's your fun fact stat of the day, I suppose. So to me, like the Bills running backs, I uh, I mean maybe you play Moss and you hope he dips into the end zone twice, but I really doubt that happens. Um, and then on the Colts side, well, I, also I think pretty much all Bills receivers are in play. Um, I mean Diggs for the obvious reasons. Any of the other ones because the Bills just pass the ball so much. Um, if Beasley is not able to go, that does make. Um, McKenzie in play at 3,300 and obviously John Brown and Gabe Davis are both options as well. So on the indie side, I mean, the ball gets spread out a lot. T.Y. Hilton's kind of been their best guy, but um, Michael Pittman has the highest snap rate, but hasn't done anything for fancy purposes. So um, I feel like, you know, maybe T.Y. Hilton at 5,000, I think my best 
play and kind of the stylistic matchup bang for the buck there would be Zach Pascal is like either your really cheap wide receiver three or kind of dart throw flex, depending on how you build your lineup. He's 3,700. Um, I don't know. He's kind of like my favorite uh, receiver in the context of the game. So I don't know if you have any thoughts so far. Yeah. So, well, I'll say this. I, there's a guy that I'm not fitting in the lineups yet, but I'm, I want to find a way and that's Josh Reynolds. Um, Josh Reynolds saw 10 targets last time against Seattle. I think uh, they're probably going to have to pass to keep, keep up. I'm not really interested in any other share of the Rams offense. I think he's a good differentiation piece and he's cheap. Um, what I'd probably want to do is like I, I built something just kind of for you don't like Van Jefferson Jr. <laughs> not not as much, believe it or not. Uh, I like building around Josh Allen. I think it's a pretty obvious, maybe not that different um stack but i think what we get if we do allen and then Hines at rb1 and then i want two bills receivers so i would take beasley and Diggs in this scenario and then i do uh, a secondary stack of washington players mckissick and mclaurin and then the you know because i guess this is such a small slate you kind of have to have a third in your secondary stack and that would be antonio brown so he'd be my flex then i would you know i almost am a little worried about having three Washington pass catchers, but Logan Thomas still fits in here. And obviously he's been a baller really regardless of the situation and then top it off with Seahawks DST. And I think especially with the golf situation, they are the most attractive play by far amongst the, the defenses. So that would be what I would do. Uh, you get a lot of exposure to Washington and Buffalo, and then basically just, you know, a secondary off of those two offenses. So, I don't know. What do you think? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I don't hate it. I do like the Josh Reynolds um, play. Um, you, you don't have any interest in Cam Akers. I mean, I do. We know he's explosive. And especially if there's, you know, quarterback issues, they're probably going to no, the run game. No, no Darrell Henderson, right? He's out. Right. So and Whit Whitworth will be back at uh, left tackle. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a case to be made for him. Um and the Rams running attack has always been good for when there's someone who gets enough volume. So, yeah, you could absolutely make a case for him. I honestly prefer Naheem Hines uh, for the reasons you mentioned earlier and his price. Um, and, you know, then you still get that secondary option off of the Bills offense. Other running back options on this slate. I mean, Chris Carson at 5,900. Um, no, I mean, if... The Rams offense just sputters and Seattle gets out to an early lead and maybe Carson's like a touchdown beneficiary. He could end up with like 20 touches, but I don't know. Seahawks have also just kind of been spreading the ball out a little bit more. Um, I mean, JD McKissick is in play for all the same reasons that Naheem Hines is. Um, you know, the risk there is like, uh, as you've talked about, we've, want the football team to use Gibson a lot more as a pass catcher, but they've been using him as a rusher, but perhaps playoffs, you know, you just, you know, it's Gibson's job because he's the most talented, more explosive player possible. And then I think Ronald Jones at 5,500 as a more than touchdown favorite is absolutely in play. Um, and any other commentary there? No, I think, uh, I think we got the slate pretty well covered here. All right. Um, well, we do need to run through the tight end options quickly, I guess. So Logan Thomas, as we've, as we've mentioned, 
fantastic player, and there's a reason he's the most expensive at 4,900. I think the – I prefer Gronk as a play in the context of the slate. He's $1,000 cheaper, likely a little less ownership, and just as high upside. So, you know, I I think if I – you know, for most of my lineups, I'd rather have Gronk than Logan Thomas. And then with the rest of them, I mean, you're really – Dawson Knox looked pretty good last week. He did. You know, his his hands don't look like they're made of uh, gold, but uh, anymore, I don't know. Maybe soften them up a little bit. Yeah. But um, I think other than Knox, you're really you know you're just playing touchdown roulette between Higby, Everett, Burton, Doyle, MAC, anyone else. Like it's touchdown roulette. So they're all pretty much priced the same. So, you know, build pick, if you're, you know, look at like which game you have opponent, you have the most of and toss them in there and, you know, hope for the, hope for the best. Like, I don't think there's really any difference among the rest of the tight ends on the slate. Yeah. You're either going to go really cheap and just hope for a touchdown or you get one of those two studs that you already talked about basically. Um, Okay, good stuff. So that's the three-game slate coverage. Obviously, if you have any other questions, you know where to find us on Twitter. Um, Okay, Jeff, so let's move on to Sunday now, and let's start with the Ravens minus three versus the Titans. Um, The Ravens, you know, they lost to the Steelers at the start of December. That capped an 0-3 skid with losses to New England and Tennessee. That Tennessee game was in overtime. And then the Ravens have been rolling ever since. It feels like they're finally getting back to their dominant 2019 form. Lamar has been playing better. Marquise Brown has been involved. J.K. Dobbins has been dominant. Their defense is still really good. Uh, so Baltimore has finally gotten into playoff form. They were basically in playoff form all 2019 until they lost. Um, Tennessee has been capably beating up on bad teams, so that's good. But, you know, we're recently clobbered by the Packers in Week 16. They barely beat the Texans the following week. I think Tennessee feels maybe better than they are. And I think one of the problems is that their defense is a complete like Swiss cheese unit out there right now. I'm very surprised by that, but I've also been uh, personnel wise, been liking the guys that they've been bringing in and for whatever reason, it's just not quite working there. So been disappointed by the Titans defense the last two years. But anyway, Jeff, I I think I just, you know, it's a good matchup. I think it's going to be a fun game. I think I'll side with a better defense and take Baltimore money line here. Uh, And reason being, I think they're both offenses are capable of of playing, you know, heavy running, heavy running game scripts, but still let up the scoreboard. And I just think the Ravens defense is probably going to be able to get a few more stops than the Titans. So, uh, what say you about this matchup? Yeah, I'm with you on this. Um, Baltimore is the better team and all around. Um, yeah, I I think I might be misquoting it, but the general point will be the same. I think the Ravens have only punted twice in their last two matchups against Tennessee. So that's the regular season. And then the um, playoff game last year, I think it said they only punted on two drives, but they had eight turnovers. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Like, uh, and they were still, well, I guess the playoff game last year wasn't that close. And then they missed like had like five failed fourth down conversions or whatever. So basically they just hit, all the negative variants in the last two games against Tennessee. Um, I'm expecting that to revert. And I think Baltimore will win this moderately. And 
Um, I don't know. I think Lamar and Dobbins are just going to destroy that defense on the ground. And uh, yeah, like it's Baltimore's just a lot better built. Yeah. And, you know, after they won that, you know, thrilling probably game of the year against the, the Browns, the division rival, um, it just was unbelievable matchup um, and sent us to the next round of the SFBX playoffs. But uh, anyway, um, I think the Ravens are I think they proved in that game that they can handle a really high paced, uh, fast paced, high scoring offense opposite them. And obviously we know that if they get a lead, they can run the clock out as good as anyone because they're actually effective running the ball. Yeah, they they might be the best team in the league with a lead. Yeah. They're they're it's very scary to think about getting behind from them, especially uh when that would in some ways neutralize Derrick Henry a little bit because they just wouldn't be able to give him the ball on first, second, and third down like they seem to love to do. Um, but you know, he's also still amazing. And speaking of Derrick Henry, Jeff, let's talk about the king for a second. Okay. He just recorded uh I think it was the eighth. 2000 yard season of all time. Um, and, you know, I've long been a Henry, Henry truther. He's so fun to watch and root for, but I'm also on team RBs don't matter with a few exceptions. You know, we talk about Kamara, Christian McCaffrey, players like that. They've all been paid recently. Kamara, Christian McCaffrey, Derrick Henry, all got big contracts. Is Derrick Henry one of the ones that actually does matter? And before you reply, this is not in the sense of the how the others, I know you know this, but this is not the same way that he might matter uh, as, as you know, Alvin Kamara and Christian McCaffrey. They are exceptional pass catchers. They're obviously very effective runners, but really they just do so much more than just run. Meanwhile, Derrick Henry seems to be maybe the only running back in the league that you could truly build around around this running game uh, and still win and still be explosive and still be dominant. I mean, am I am I wrong in thinking that he might be an exception here? Um. Well, I mean, I... I think Derrick Henry is a fantastic player. And I also think though, and like he is um, on the margins, like I don't want to say on the margins, but he does provide you like an advantage in the rushing game relative to the league average running back and almost every other running back in the league. Um, I think Nick Chubb is also up there in that discussion as well in terms of rushing ability. In terms of winning football games, it's tough because like the running game itself matters so little in terms of actually winning football games. So yes, I think Derrick Henry makes your running game better um, by probably a good margin. But like when it comes to actually winning the football games, I still think it's mostly Ryan Tannehill and AJ Brown. I mean, look at that game and against Corey Davis. You, you, and oh yeah, Corey Davis is having a fantastic season. It'd be very interesting to to see what happens with him. So, um, uh, I mean, I think like marginally, yeah, he matters. He improves their chances of winning the football game. And uh, against defenses who maybe sell out too much to try and stop him, and then open things up for uh, AJ Brown and Corey Davis downhill and overcommit on play action. Like, yeah, that, that stuff does matter. But also, like, the play action works just as well with Darrington Evans in the game as it does Derrick Henry. So, yep. look at that game game against Houston last week. They get the ball back with, like, what, 20 seconds to go in the game or whatever on their own 25. You're not handing it off to Derrick Henry. You're launching it deep to A.J. Brown. Yeah. Well, you know, this has just been – I'll add this in as well because it's been a frustration of mine since Derrick Henry's entered the league. And that is you've got the 6'3", 250-pound guy – 
And this, the area of the field that he's most dangerous is once he gets past the line of scrimmage and in space. Once he gets there, that's where you see these like 80, 99 yard runs, 50 yards, whatever it is. When he gets to the second level, it is very, very difficult to stop him. It's actually not that hard to stop him if you get any sort of penetration. He just goes down too easily behind the line of scrimmage. Um, we've talked about that before. It's amazing for how big he is. Maybe that's the reason. I don't know. Big tree fall hard. Um, but anyway, his lack of usage in the pass game, like, I mean, he has to be capable of running like a simple angle route or something. And if you can do that and you have these amazing receivers, you got Johnny Smith and, you know, some of the other weapons on this offense that can stretch the field and open up space. If you get Derek, Derek Henry out there more than just a screen pass, like, he has to be doing something. He doesn't need any more running back reps. Let's be honest. Okay. So get him catching the ball on a jugs machine 500 times of practice and just leave him there. It's, it's just a long time struggle that I've had with the, with the handling of Derrick Henry. Maybe he's not interested in, I don't know all the details, but uh, that, you know, he could, he's not like incapable of being a complete player. I don't think that he's going to be making like one handed catches in the back of the end zone, so to speak. But in terms of being like, I mean, look at John, what Jonathan Taylor's done in his rookie year. He was not used heavily at all as a pass catcher in college, and he's been probably the best receiving running back uh, among rookies this year. And so, you know, if he can overcome that profile, I don't know why Derrick Henry wouldn't be able to either. So, rant ended. Jeff, uh, any other thoughts on the Ravens-Tennessee game? No, I think the Ravens win, and we'll see. Yeah, okay, me too. So let's move on to the next game. That's the Saints minus 10 versus the Bears. Obviously, the Saints finished very hot at the end of the season. Uh, you know, week 16, we saw probably the game of a life uh, for Alvin Kamara. Six touchdowns, 150-something yards. I mean, just absolutely ridiculous. $5,000 fine. $5,000 fine. <laughs> Stupidest thing ever with those cleats. But anyway, uh, the Saints were really, really hot. And amazingly, the Bears, like, you know, they're probably okay right now. Like, I've been a long-time Bears pessimist but my boy david montgomery is doing pretty good am i right jeff <laughs> um well first of all bear does mean pessimistic so that's redundant true um uh nope david montgomery had a fantastic finish to the year and he will be my biggest fade of the 2021 draft season yeah it's a easy case to make against him because of you know all the things that are coming back in terms of into um in addition to regression Tariq Cohen's going to be back. It, we don't have to get into it yeah, right he now. But we'll, he saw one of the, like the largest opportunity shares, easiest slate of defenses, uh, rare case of positive game script for a Mr. Bisky that team. But agreed. yeah, that'll be a much bigger offseason discussion. Right. For this week, um, I don't know, 10 points actually does kind of seem like a pretty good amount. I'm kind of tempted to take the Bears plus 10 here. I agree with that. It feels like, I mean... We know the Saints are really, really good when they want to be, when when they're yeah, actually. I mean, arg arguably the most well-rounded. Yeah. Complete. Um, although I wouldn't agree with Ian Harditz, uh PFF article that the, that the Bills are like 11th. I know he had some sort of quantitative method to that, so it wasn't just an opinion piece. It wasn't quantitative. It was just like. It was ranked. Completely. It was uh, he basically, I mean, the quantitative method was that there was no waiting. <laughs> yeah that's, so it's like, that's oh, fair. and also like the ol ranking the what they use for the ll rankings was uh yeah yeah not not a well done article or study or whatever but i agree yes he did have the saints number one um 
And I mean, makes sense. The defense has been fantastic. They have um, some really good weapons on offense. Um, I still think they win this game pretty handily. I just, I don't know, Saints coming up a little bit short in, um, in the playoffs the last few years. Uh, Breeze doesn't look like his arm's going to, like, you know, fall off like it did one or two years ago, but, you know, it's still not, like, you know, that great of arm strength. And you, I don't know, you don't have the Superdome fans going crazy. So, um, I don't know, I think Bears maybe just try and shorten the game up a little bit and 10 points. You know, I don't think they really threaten New Orleans, but, um, you know, maybe it's a backdoor cover or something. But, yeah, give me the Bears. Yeah, I, you know, obviously would totally pick the Saints if I had to pick a winner, but I agree. 10 is just a lot, and I... I don't know. They've been really hot, but but Breeze has not been the same player that we're used to. He's just been able to manage with what he's got, and that's a good defense and some explosive weapons on offense. So we'll see. Uh, over under half touchdown for Taysom Hill. Oh, over. I'll take it. They love using him in the red zone, man. And he uh, to, you know, to be completely honest, he gets a lot of hate because everyone you know wants Alvin Kamara to get those touches. But not only do they have a good offensive line for this sort of thing, Latavius Murray is great in that scenario as well, but Taysom Hill is like actually pretty effective. Yeah, you know, in the red zone, it actually is really good. Uh, like it's And especially as he has looked better as a passer, like I red zone and short yardage, I really like the package actually. Like for fantasy purposes, it sucks and it's annoying as hell. But right. for like actual NFL purposes, it's gotten a lot better and I don't hate it. Yeah, and you know, for for the simple fact, if nothing else, obviously he's a great athlete and a very capable runner, as he's proved even in his starts. But the simple fact that all of a sudden you go eleven on eleven, and what I mean by that is when you have a quarterback handing off the ball to a running back, you're ten on eleven, right? The quarterback isn't in you know in the pile blocking, so to speak. When Taysom Hill is a runner, that is what makes it so difficult. That's why Josh Allen's amazing at it. That's why Lamar Jackson's amazing at it. It's because they actually have it's technically evening up and removing the defense's advantage. But really, it's an advantage for the offense. So anyway, okay, we're in agreement there, Jeff. Um, Steelers minus six versus Cleveland. And so I got to say this, Cleveland is is just getting decimated by the COVID situation, right? Their head coach is out. They've got plenty of players that are on the COVID list. They apparently, a lot of people were dunking on this on Twitter, but uh, the league said they weren't going to push the uh, Cleveland-Pittsburgh game back unless there was a Ravens-type outbreak, I believe. And then people are replying, like, what qualifies as a Ravens-type outbreak? Because we've got, like, 15, 20 players on the COVID list right now. So Cleveland is in a tough spot. We also know that they've been very, very explosive. They've had a really strong finish of the year. Obviously, we already talked about that Ravens-Cleveland matchup. When you can comp- when you can compete and keep up with, like, Lamar Jackson at his best, then you're doing something right. And Baker Mayfield has had a really strong year. So, Jeff... I think with the current state of Cleveland's roster, if everything holds and none of these COVID players come back uh, and are eligible for the game on Sunday, then I think we have to go Steelers minus six. Even though the Steelers have really, really struggled in the second half of this year, I think there's too much experience and too much talent on both sides of the ball in Pittsburgh to think that a shorthanded Cleveland team is really going to be able to to beat them. I mean, if we're talking six points, I could, you know, you could obviously see a backdoor cover or something, but I do think that the Steelers are uh, the better team as things currently stand. If Cleveland is all of a sudden retooled and it stays at minus six, I doubt it would stay there. But if it did, I would probably take Cleveland. But what say you in this scenario? I mean, Cleveland just struggled to be Mason Rudolph last week. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, I, I don't think Cleveland is there yet. Um, you know, this Pittsburgh team has their eyes set on the Super Bowl. Cleveland had their eyes set on making the playoffs. Great so point. like, um, yeah, I, I, I'm taking the Steelers here. Uh, I think the line opened like three or three and a half. And I really wish I had hammered that earlier, but, uh, um, cause I six is like, I, I still think they cover. I'm just obviously less confident, but in terms of just winning the game, I'm taking Pittsburgh. I think Cleveland's kind of going to be in that kind of happy to be here type of mentality, similar to the way the, like the bills were in 2017. Well, when we ended the drought, like, you know, how they, that's a racing lock. I mean, that was just a miserable game and we had no offense, but you know, a little bit different con- like type of teams. And, but in terms of contacts, just like, Hey, we, you know, ended the drought. We're here. Um, not to say that, that they're not trying or anything, obviously, but like, you know, these are two teams with different aspirations. We'll see. I think it's, um, I think six is probably fine. I don't think it's necessarily mispriced with the uncertainty around the COVID situation. But yeah, I'm going with the Steelers in this scenario. Uh, I do think that they are going to rebound from how they played uh, overall in the last few weeks. You know, they had good moments and they had some really bad moments. But uh, Big Ben has been here before and, you know, he's still there. He said he was dealing with like a little bit of a knee thing during that lull as well. Um, Like, And I guess like that was getting better, healthier. So um, that was like, an attributing factor to the low target depth and you know he's i guess he's hoping to push the ball downfield more well the other thing is he had to take over play calling duty from from fickner um in that matchup against the colts they were getting beat bad in the first half and pittsburgh players i think it was pouncey the, the center said that the colts were calling out their play at the line because he just had really predictable play calling it was everything that they saw on tape i guess uh and so big ben takes over play calling in the second half starts pushing the ball down the field and they're actually really good again on offense like we used to seeing them earlier in the year. So I can't imagine Ben in a, in a must-win game like the playoffs are uh, is going to relinquish that type of control. Maybe it's like, Randy, let's get on the same page and let's do this because I want to do this. I don't think it's going to be like, okay, yeah, you made a mistake. Like, here, here are the keys back. I don't I don't think Big Ben is going to waste that when this could you know, possibly be his last chance. Oh, very good point. And then there was the stuff about Claypool saying how they cut back his reps yep. to stop him from hitting the rookie ball. I don't know. That doesn't make a ton of sense. But like if as if they were trying to preserve him for a playoff push, then okay, now that 30, 40% snap share is up to 60, 70%. And it's another explosive play you gotta look out for. Yeah, I I think this is Pittsburgh's game. Agreed. So let's move on to the DFS portion of this three game slate, Jeff, and I'll just kick it off with some initial thoughts and the game that I really want to hammer starting, you know, with the quarterback, the passing game stack here is the one we're just talking about Pittsburgh, Cleveland. Um, And the reason is I'm not sure it's going to be crazy ownership. Um, And Ben is the third, third most expensive. So he's right down the middle, basically and this slate of quarterbacks. Um, and then I really want to hammer Chase Claypool. You could easily do naked Claypool, um, but I, I want to hammer Chase Claypool when I'm playing this weekend. I also am perfectly fine with the Nick Chubb run back. Um, consider- yeah, who would like a naked Claypool? <laughs> Friend of the show, Ronnie Sannon. Oh, yeah, that too. Clay. He would become a Clay Ocean <laughs> there. Um, but, you know, there's just a lot of options to choose from there, and I think Claypool is the one that probably has the lo- the lowest ownership. Now, Deontay Johnson's a very worthy play, 
but um, you got the Nick Chubb run back, and then you could basically take your pick at one other if you want. If maybe if you even want to go Eric Ebron, uh, who or he's out actually, so you can't. Um, he's he was out. He's activated from the COVID list. Not sure if he's going to play. So, um, but anyway, so I like J.K. Dobbins this week as well. I think he's kind of an obvious play. He might even border on chalky Jeff uh he's fourth most expensive running back in this three game slate but obviously a great matchup against Tennessee and we know that if Baltimore gets up they're going to run and J.K. Dobbins has been not only explosive but getting good volume so I don't think Dobbins would be chalky you don't think I mean when you have you have Henry Kamara and Montgomery all on the same slate like those those three are so I mean so much bigger names than Dobbins well, but I, I mean, I, I love Dobbins as a play this week. I'm just saying I don't think he's chalky because it's like the chalk's going to be Kamara and Henry and Montgomery. Well, shit, I'll take it. All right, let's do it. <laughs> so, and then, you know, tight end situation, uh, not ideal. I mean, the only... It's bad. Yeah, I think Hooper is probably my favorite play amongst them because he's seen some pretty damn good volume when with this COVID-ravaged team. Um, he saw 15 targets, Jeff, 15 targets in their week 16 loss of the jets. Uh, he had 71 yards on those 15 targets. So really not good there. Um, but at the very least, I think he probably offers maybe the most upside in, uh, amongst these, these tight ends. Um, anyway, Jeff, what say you about this slate is, you know, there are different game you're looking to target here. Um, or, you know, is Pittsburgh the favorite? What are you thinking? Uh, well, I want to get on the Baltimore-Tennessee game as much as possible. Mm. Um, I mean, I, Lamar and Henry are going to be two of the chalkier plays, but flip it. Uh, put in Dobbins, as we said, and then Tannehill and A.J. Brown. I like it. I mean, I mean, I think you could probably even squeeze in Mark Andrews there. A.J. Brown's going to be a little chalk, I guess, but I, I don't know. You have... Michael Thomas, uh, Burbank Brown, Deontay Johnson. And there's, there's enough for see Allen Robinson's on the slate too. And I mean, he's actually looking at some pretty low ownership, you know, for a six, uh, three game slate too. So I, I think there's enough receivers here that AJ Brown's not really that chalky. So, and I mean, it doesn't even matter if you pivot off of Henry and go Dobbins. So do something like um, Tannehill, Dobbins, Andrews, AJ Brown. Or even instead of Andrews, put in Johnny Smith. Uh, I don't. That's kind of like the game build I like. And then Steelers defense, or Saint or Saints defense. Yeah, I think um, there's there's a, a stru- uh, construct I'm doing right now, and it's basically really heavy on these big time running backs: Derrick Henry, J.K. Dobbins, and I'm actually going with Kareem Hunt. Um, for budgeting purposes. And then I just kind of smash high upside wide receivers, Claypool, Marquise Brown, Corey Davis. I already talked about Austin Hooper and then Steelers defense. Um, and then that's obviously all around Big Ben. So that's what I've got right now. Um, I think you get a pretty solid mix of upside. Like you could you could even play that in cash, but I think it's more of a tournament play because uh, of the upside at wide receiver, none of the studs that you would normally see uh, to anchor this this lineup. You know, no. no when do we find out if when do we find out if Kamara's eligible to play? I'm not sure. I mean, he was doing virtual practicing. I think if there's any chance that he can play, he's going to play. They're they're gonna they're gonna push that Agreed. as far as they can. Um, I'm just thinking more in the context of like 
suppressing his ownership a little bit maybe yeah i don't know i mean it's completely up in the air so ownership probably would be suppressed a little bit it doesn't seem it doesn't sound like he's fate like you know dealing with any symptoms so if he's active i don't think you should expect anything less than the normal kamara but uh you know who's to say that people still wouldn't uh choose to pivot off of him so uh it would make latavius murray kind of an interesting uh play regardless I mean, only 4500 about half of Kamara's price, and we know that he can take over games too. Yeah, he'd be super, probably be a bit chalky, but wouldn't he? Eh, be somewhat chalky, but like, yeah, not terrible. Okay, so Jeff, any other thoughts on this three-game slate? Donovan Peoples-Jones at 3100 is or 3200 is kind of decent. Yeah. I mean, he's been um, putting up some points, I suppose. Yeah. I don't have too much else to add there, I guess. We pretty much covered it all. Cool. Gus Edwards to 4,400 is going to be like a really low ownership play too and pretty cheap with almost as much upside as Dobbins. I wouldn't say as much upside, but I'd say as much volume. I mean, they're still basically yeah. splitting. I mean, yeah, volume and like touchdown equity. Yeah, agreed. So I think Dobbins has a better chance for a big play, uh, probably a better chance for like, I think a higher ceiling overall. But I do think yeah. that that Edwards is gonna get you know double digit carries. Mm-hmm. Um, and one just overall lineup building strategy to point out on these smaller slates is taking money off the table. I think we we talked about this with Hayden Winks in the summer, or maybe mid season. It's like leaving money uh, on the table is a really good way to get lower, like you know, more differentiation in your lineups. Like. Um, I think I saw, I mean, for showdowns in particular, like you almost have to uh, leave $500 on the table if you want any chance of like a unique lineup. Um, I don't want to say any chance, but yeah, yeah, if you use like all but one or $200, you're likely ending up with a duplicate lineup in a large field tournament. So leaving four or five, $600 on the table when you build your lineup is a good way to get differentiation. That's a good point. Very good point. Um, all right, Jeff. So let's leave uh, this weekend's games behind us for a moment. And as we wrap up here, I want to talk about Deshaun Watson. And I want to talk about this in the context of the NFL landscape very likely, like drastically changing this offseason. We're talking, you know, a generational quarterback prospect and Trevor Lawrence going somewhere. We're talking Justin Fields, who's really, really impressed this year, uh, especially, you know, the, the late uh, portion of it. And obviously other quarterback prospects as well as shaving up to be a very strong class. But then there's, you know, Matt Ryan could be on the move. Uh, there's all kinds of Matthew Stafford. Matthew Stafford I think Stafford's more likely to, uh, for contract reasons. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's possible. Uh, I just but, think direction. Yeah, the, the overall point, the overall point still stands. Right. So there's just so I mean, Sam Darnold obviously is a big, a big talking point for a lot of reasons. Uh, Cam Newton will be a free agent. There's all kinds of stuff. All the Philadelphia uh, period. Yeah, there's there's dozens of teams that are potentially in the market for a quarterback, and it's I don't know I don't know that it's like unheard of or you know a complete rarity, but it just feels very big. And so Deshaun Watson is rumored to potentially be seeking a trade from Houston. At, at the very least, the rumor is that he has he has talked to teammates about it. Um, I'm not sure why that would get leaked, but why does anything get leaked? Who knows. Um, Anyway, so I want to talk about the this in that context, which is that if Deshaun Watson is potentially available for a trade and you've got Trevor Lawrence at the top of the draft, doesn't sound like anyone would trade out of that spot. Um, there's a lot of quarterback prospects in this class. What would it take to acquire Deshaun Watson? And who do you think 
uh, would be the most likely to give up that price. Well, I mean, Jalen Ramsey went for two first-round picks, correct? Yep, and so did Jamal Adams. And Khalil Mack. Yep. Um, now, one thing that is slightly different is that Deshaun Watson has a no-trade clause in his contract, so that gives him leverage. That he could basically pick. Um, yeah, or say, nope, I'm not going there. Um, if, you know, I don't know, Philadelphia comes through with a godfather offer, and he's like, nah, fuck you, Philly. Um, I don't want to play there, just as, as an example. Um, and, or maybe he's just so fed up with Houston that he doesn't care, and he'll just go to the highest bidder. Um, in terms of, I think, like, you almost, if you're Houston, you have to be demanding, like, a top three draft pick for this year, right? Like, I mean, you know, maybe it's a three-way type of trade where Miami trades the 103 and moves back and gets et cetera, and the other, and Houston goes up to the 103 and gets whatever, and, you know, Team C gets to Sean. Um, I, I think that, you know, Miami is a fantastic landing spot for him. If Miami trades Tua, the 103, and the their other draft pick for Deshaun Watson. I mean, right? Like, who is anyone or any one of those three parties going to say no? I think um, Miami is maybe not the most likely because I think a lot of other teams are probably more incentivized, more in a position that they would want to acquire Deshaun Watson. But I think probably best equipped to make a move like this because you could include Tua, obviously. Um, you've got the third overall pick. You've got the 18th overall pick. You've got a high second rounder, and you've obviously still got picks in 2022. I think if anyone had the incentive and the treasure trove to do it, it's probably Miami. Theoretically, you could say the Jets too, um, because they have a lot of picks. They could put, you know, I guess throw in Sam Darnold, um, and so you know, theoretically, the Jets are in play for those exact same reasons. But it feels like Miami would be a place that he'd actually want to go because uh, Miami is upward trajectory and the Jets are, you know, as low as it gets. But anyway, okay, so I just want to bring up Watson and just kind of like start to talk about this quarterback situation in the league, which is, you know, we could be looking at a very, very different quarterback landscape a year from now. We could see Carson Wentz end up in Indy or New York or something like that. We could see the the Giants potentially draft someone we could, you know, all, all, basically there's like one or two quarterbacks that you think are locked in to their current situation. We could even see the Packers trade Aaron Rodgers. I, you know, it seems unfathomable right now, but he's 37. Yeah. He's playing like an MVP. He's playing his best ball, you know, since 2011 or whenever it was. Uh, but they also drafted a quarterback in the first round last year and maybe they want to cut bait while they still can on a really high price. Who, who knows? You know what I mean? This, this whole situation is completely up in the air. And there are plenty of really good teams that might need a quarterback, the Steelers included, the Saints included. Um, it'll be interesting. So any, any other thoughts on this uh, subject, Jeff? Um, I think San Francisco would be another really good landing spot. Totally, yeah. I think a lot of players would want to play with, with Shanahan. That's that's one of my favorite, like, you know, it's, I don't even, wouldn't even say it's a rumor, but one of my favorite, like, I wish this could happen kind of things is uh, Matt Ryan going to San Francisco, reuniting with Shanahan. Mm -hmm. That would be interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. Any other thoughts, Jeff, as we wrap up here? Go Bills. Go Bills. All right. So, guys, you know where to find us on Twitter, at Contested Catch for me, at Buffville Stats for Jeff. By the way, he's been, if you don't follow Jeff already, he's been having a barrage of great tweets the last few weeks. So, encourage you to do that and check them out if you missed them. 
Um, obviously, ContestedCatch.com is still up and running. Um, we are going to be hitting you guys with some NFL draft content in the coming months, obviously leading up to the draft. That's where uh, the focus will turn um, as you know we progress through the postseason here with the NFL and things really, really shape out. Uh, and we'll be rooting for the Bills. You know, we hope you guys are, are rooting for them too. They're a fun team to root for. So um, good luck to anyone playing playoff DFS or playoff tournaments and hope we get a profitable weekend, right, Jeff? Always. Always. All right. Thank you guys for tuning in and we hope to catch you next time.